You should be able to hear me now. Are we good now? Yeah. All right. Yes. Yeah. When you mute your microphone, it doesn't uh, tend to work. So, um, okay. Uh, I'm I'm live from Las Vegas right now, and uh, and and we're ready to talk about the Fifteenth Amendment. There were a couple questions uh, that were raised about the uh, about citizenship, both in this era and before, and uh, generally about citizenship in the Constitution. And uh, so let me try to say a couple things about that uh, first. Uh, so. If, if you go back uh, to the Articles of Confederation, there was no process set up for the naturalization of citizens. And uh, what this meant was that the states basically had control over who was a citizen of the United States. States would have different standards for letting people into the country, and immigrants could come into the parts of the country that had the lower standards. Um, and the United States Constitution does change that. And, uh, and it gives to Congress the power to set immigration and naturalization laws, or to make immigration and naturalization laws, um, so that there wouldn't be a race to the bottom, uh, that, each, that there would be one national policy on admission of immigrants into the country. And, uh, and the national government had that power, it had that power, and still exercised that power. Um, uh, the Dred Scott decision is, uh, is, I think, the next big benchmark uh, on this. And what the Dred Scott decision basically did was turn back more toward the model of the Articles of Confederation. That is, it said that we have a dual system of federalism, and that's true but it put the states first in defining who citizens of the United States were. And uh, state citizenship seemed to be kind of national citizenship under Dred Scott. And the 14th Amendment, the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, which if I had my constitution handy, I would read. Uh, and if I had it up on one of the PowerPoints here, I would put up on a screen. The first sentence of the first section of the 14th Amendment um, basically says that that uh, that people are citizens of both. Oh, there we go. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Reed. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. So what this uh, does, it kind of brings away from the article's view of citizenship, away from the Dred Scott view of citizenship, and since that you are both an American citizen and a citizen of a state. And it sets certain standards for who is a citizen of the United States. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to our, uh, our laws are citizens of both the United States and the state where they reside. So it's up to Congress to set the naturalization process. And, uh, and to put meat on the bones of what it means to be a naturalized citizen. What process would be gone through? Is mere showing up at the door enough to become a naturalized citizen? Uh, is something more, a citizenship test required? Uh, but 
You become, I mean, it's a very interesting word, right? You become natural. That is, we go through a process, a political process of some sort, or I should say a process decided by political authorities to become a citizen. And, uh, and you know, that's uh, a correction, a, an amendment of the Dred Scott decision. And that's, I think, the key phrase of the 14th Amendment uh, that weighs in on citizenship. All right. Uh, so Elizabeth is confused as to why women don't count. Well, all right, so it, it, it is a good question, and uh, here's what I have, here, here's what I, I, I think I can say I know about this. Uh, women do count. Um, if, I mean, how, how to put this? Uh, if, if, uh, if a census is being taken, women count as citizens. Uh, they count before this process, and they count after this process. Um, uh, women have civil rights. That is, states cannot abridge, uh, they cannot deny equal protection of the laws on the basis of, uh, uh, put that? women are entitled to due process. They cannot have their life, liberty, or property abridged without due process of law. They are entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizenship. Women count toward the number of representatives the states has. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. They count, they count toward the number of representatives the state has. And it's not correct, Linda, I think, to say that they cannot vote for the representative under the Constitution. Many states uh, in the 1800s allowed women to vote. Um, uh, states had the decision at that point to decide uh, whether or not women could vote. Um, many, uh, you know, I think Wyoming was the first state that in the 1880s, uh, many followed. Uh, the Constitution does not bar women from voting in any way. Uh, and in fact, it's a, it's a question I ask of my college students all the time. Who does the Constitution prohibit from voting? And the answer is, uh, no one. Uh, all right. During this time period, weren't they sort of viewed as property of the men? I would say no. I don't think uh, I don't think that that's correct. Uh, um, uh, uh, states had states had varied laws on these matters. Some states very early had uh, easy divorce, women owning property. In the 1820s, Indiana became really one of the first places in the world that acknowledged uh, women's property ownership, had very easy divorce, um, and other states followed uh, Indiana on that. Um, so, I, you know, it's not, it's not something that you can make a blanket statement, and this is, the, this is, I think, the important thing to recognize about the federal system that the 14th Amendment affects. States did things differently. Indiana will do things differently than New York and Massachusetts on all of these matters. Um, it was it was a federal issue. It was a it was the issue that states decided. And in fact, uh, that's a great. Uh, I mean, it's a it's an interesting way uh, to segue into kind of talking about where we are in these Reconstruction amendments, um, because the Fourteenth Amendment, as we saw last time, 
sets national standards for how states can act in policy. And uh, states cannot deprive their citizens of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Um, Elizabeth, uh, I, I, I'm going to try to get to this, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, and, and hopefully, hopefully uh, as we go through the 15th Amendment, some of the uh, uh, implications of the 15th Amendment for the 19th Amendment will come, uh, will become apparent. I even have, a, I think, a slide on the 19th Amendment coming up. Uh, uh, all right, yes, uh, the 14th Amendment does talk about all citizens being protected equally. But that's different. I mean, I want to I, I want to say it like that. Uh, those are the words of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, it's one of the standards that states are set to. All citizens must be protected equally. So, if a state would not would fail to investigate, say, any crime against a black, but did investigate similar crimes against a white, that would be a, a violation of the equal protection of the laws and that state would uh, run into problems. As we saw, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 tries to put meat on the bones um, and uh, uh, of, of what that equal protection would mean. And uh, what I think is the most interesting thing, and really the thing that's most challenging to our understanding of politics uh, today in looking at the 14th and 15th Amendments and their relationship to one another, is to ask the question, why does the 14th Amendment come first? The 14th Amendment, as we saw last time, uh, seeks to protect people's civil rights. That's why you get the Civil Rights Act um, uh, immediately in the aftermath of the 14th Amendment being passed. Uh, it, it seeks to provide equal protection due process, and to protect the privileges and immunities of citizenship. And those are not, the vote is not included under any of those th things. So why does the 14th Amendment come before the 15th Amendment? And what does that say about their view of politics? Okay, so uh, Reed, uh, uh, Reed and Stacy, I think, are... Uh, uh, kind of flowing in the same direction on this, uh, that the civil rights were seen as more important, perhaps more threatened, but certainly more important than the right to vote. It's almost as if the, the, the people of that time thought that your civil rights could be without you having the right to vote. And uh, Shannon mentions that uh, you have to be a citizen before your civil rights are protected. And I think the 14th Amendment tries to accomplish both of those things. Um, and, you know, these, these amendments come right after one another. The 14th Amendment is passed in 1866. The 15th Amendment is passed in 1868. They're two years apart. And, uh, and in any event, I think it's a, uh, it's a deep question about politics.
to ask why 14 came before 15. And what it says that they valued civil rights over voting rights. I think, uh, you know, many of the questions uh, uh, that revolve around women's suffrage are based on the idea that voting is the most important right. But I think the order of the 15th and 14th Amendment reveals that the view of these drafters is that civil rights are, let's say, like the closest to natural rights that there is. They're the closest to the things that the purpose of government is to protect these rights. And if, if, uh, if we don't protect those, voting rights would be difficult to exercise in any event. Um, so, so let's get into the 15th Amendment a little bit, and uh, let's talk about what it accomplished and why it, uh, it sought to accomplish it. And, um, and there are certain things, and uh, I think Tali is bringing this up point, uh, brings this up very uh, well in her question that's, that's kind of a contemporary question, that is a question about the particular time. Uh, what happened between July 1866, that is the passage of the 14th Amendment, and December 1868, the passage of the 15th Amendment? And, uh, you know, one of the most important things that happened was that there was a hostile executive. That is, there was worry that the Civil Rights Act would be administered by the executive. And if the executive was not full uh, fully throated in, uh, in favor of that Civil Rights Act, he would not do a diligent job enforcing the law. Now, this problem would, uh, would persist. Uh, it's very difficult to solve this problem. But if you arm the freedmen with a vote, they will have a way of expressing and of protecting themselves with their voting behavior. That, no doubt, is part of the thought here um, about why the right to vote needed to be uh, important or needed to be secured by the 15th Amendment. There's also the worry, and this is a real worry. Uh, I mean, think about, uh, think about the exhaustion that the Americans had with the Iraq War. Well, a similar thing would be happening here uh, in the Civil War, that is, the army had been mobilized for six years, it had been on war footing, and in order to keep protecting the civil rights of uh, the freedmen in the South, the army had to stay. It had to occupy the South. It had to kind of continually be on its toes. It had to be appropriated for. Men had to stay mobilized. And there was a worry, and I think this is a real worry, that the country did not want to stay on a permanent war footing. How are we going to protect the freedmen and protect the Union without having a continuing occupation, occupation by the Union Army? So the hope was, I think, that the 15th Amendment would provide a scheme of self-protection for the freedmen as they moved from slavery to citizenship. They would arm them with a vote. And this arming them with the vote would, I don't know, allow them a legal way of punishing their enemies and awarding their liberators and friends. 
this would you know provide political power to those who uh, would go after their votes and then the, then there's the issue that uh, that Tali mentions and it's not an insubstantial one which is to say at that time elections got a little close and Republicans said something to the effect that our natural voters in the South are the freedmen. And if we don't do something to enfranchise them, we could end up with Democrats ruling. And if Democrats rule, we're going to have fewer freedmen and less enforcement, less protection. And, uh, and the cause of the war will have been lost. So there's a, you know, I think a real effort on the part of, of Republicans to secure the goals of the war. And that means, you know, defeating the Democrats at this point. Because Democrats at this point are the party of treason and, uh, and restoration. Uh, and re-enslavement by another name. So blacks voting is both good policy, it's both just, and it's good politics. Now I often hear uh, an emphasis on that politics part, and, um, but I think we should not ignore the fact that the Republicans wanted to win the war and win the peace, and they wanted a just peace. And part of a just peace, they came to persuade the country was enfranchising the freedmen. All right, so let's, uh, let's take a step back and look at what the Constitution has to say about voting. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a cause of much confusion, and, uh, and I think uh, no little amount of prejudice uh, against the American founders. Uh, you hear that the American founders, you know, prohibited pr the property list from voting and others. But what does the Constitution have to say about voting? Well, this is all right there. Section one of the Constitution, the electors shall have the qualifications requisite for the electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. That means that according to the American constitutions, Constitution, the states determine voting qualifications. And you have to kind of dig deeper in looking at how the states interpreted, or I should say defined, voter qualifications. I have a chart on this that I show in a class that I teach. Um, five states had property qualifications. Uh, most had age qualifications, you know, most of them actually were 18, some of them were 21. Some had race and sex qualifications, some had religious tests. Um, but the point that I want to raise here, and this is, I think, the crucial thing to understand about the 15th Amendment and how it completes the Constitution, is that there is no constitutional floor below which a state there are, the states are not held to any standards as they set voting qualifications for their citizens. They can restrict the vote. 
They can open up the vote. They can take whatever approach they want when defining the qualifications for the most numerous branch of their legislature. And the American founders take their bearings from that most numerous branch of the state legislature. Whoever can vote for the lowest house can vote. Um, can vote. So the states determine voting qualifications under the original constitution. IDs would be perfectly okay under the original constitution. Um, uh, reading and writing tests would be perfectly okay under the original constitution. Allowing women to vote, preventing women from voting, putting severe property qualifications, all of that would be the most uh, would be determined by the states. Uh, and, and Shannon asks, did they think this was the most democratic way of going about it? I take it that means of determining uh, voting qualifications. Yes, because there was a certain amount of, there was a certain amount of, uh, how to put this, uh, you remember in the Constitutional Convention, no doubt, that some American founders wanted there to be a popular election for president. James Wilson uh, among those who wanted a popular election for president. One of the decisive objections against that was that states had different political cultures and different, I, I'll say, visions of who should vote. And uh, so Delaware restricted the uh, franchise, uh, whereas Pennsylvania opened it up. And uh, Delaware would have much less of a vote under a uh, popular election. So yes, states were doing, uh, the most democratic thing the founders do on this is that they choose the qualifications requisite for the most numerous branch of the state legislature. They could have said you have to be able to vote for the governor, you have to be able to vote for the upper house, uh, but they picked the most numerous branch. They picked the lowest possible level of voter qualification and said whoever votes in that can vote in for the House of Representatives. Um, uh, I, I don't see a, so it was a kind of compromise read. I think that's right. Um, but uh, I'm not aware of anyone at the Constitutional Convention, however, that argued for national voting standards. And, and this is uh, one of the themes that I want to develop now, uh, the 15th Amendment and the other amendments that affect voting are the first ones that set floors beneath which states. Let's take a look at uh, the 15th Amendment now um, and ask, there it is. So how does, uh, this is the question for everyone, we can, we can read the 15th Amendment, um, and here's the 19th and the 26th Amendments. How does the 15th, 19th, and 26th Amendments, as you read them, change the structure of the Constitution? Or how do they change uh, the way voting will happen?
Okay, good. Uh, I, I, uh, so let's start with the way that Patricia and Stacy formulate uh, their response to this question. Uh, because I like it, I think they're very important. What it does is it, it uh, these amendments, the 15th, the 19th, and the 26th amendments, all reflect the same pattern. They, they put a floor below which a state cannot sink on its voting laws. They hold the state to a certain kind of standards. Now, Reed, I think, goes further than that and says he takes away states' rights to limit voting. And I just want to add to that, in certain circumstances, states still set voting laws. It's just that states cannot pass laws or enforce laws that abridge or deny the vote on the basis of race, color, previous condition of servitude, sex, or on account of age, if you're over 18. So it's not, and, and, and in a way, I want, to, I want to try to counter the way that some of, uh, that, that we often formulate this. The 15th, 19th, and 26th amendments limit the states. They don't uh, add citizens. They don't uh, create more eligible voters. The way they're formulated is that states cannot restrict the vote on these criteria. So it's kind of like a no state shall formulation. No state shall restrict the vote on the basis of this, that, and the other thing. The effect of it is what you guys are in a way talking about. It allows for certain segments always to be able to access the vote. But the, the thing that I'm worried about there in that formulation is that some of those segments had access to the vote already in states. Massachusetts allowed people to cast a vote before the 15th Amendment. Wyoming allowed women to vote before the 19th Amendment. Um, some states allowed 18-year-olds to vote before the 26th Amendment. So what it does is it restricts the states from voting in a particular, uh, from restricting voting uh, on particular uh, criteria. So, Tali, that's great. Uh, and it does. Read, uh, that's correct. It creates equality across the states on these criteria. Now, can states still restrict the vote to felons? Can states still say felons cannot vote? Yes. They can still restrict on that ground. Can states... Oh, how to put this? Uh, uh, deny the vote to those who are mentally incapable of making a choice. What I mean by that is like someone on life support. <laughs> you 
Yeah, they can't. They can't. I, I didn't say it in, in the most clear way. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, it's a reasonable restriction because voting is a kind of choice and it requires reasonableness or at least the appearance of it. Um, and, uh, and so they, they, pro they probably can. A state could allow, Reed just asked this, it's a great question, a state could allow 16-year-olds to vote. Absolutely. There's nothing that says they can't. But they can't prohibit 19-year-olds from voting. State laws can go down lower than these um, particular criteria. Yeah, sometimes I think three-year-olds are half the electorate, uh, Reed. <laughs> they can go lower on, uh, uh, they can go lower than the national standards, absolutely. But states cannot sink below this when they restrict the vote. That's the key. It's one of the uh, it's one of the great misconceptions I think that is uh, uh, about the Constitution that it restricts people from voting, and you know it just doesn't appear. And and uh, so Lyandra asks, and they vote in uh, let me uh, in in any election or only in state and local elections. No, uh, the state can set. A standard for who votes for the House of Representatives, absolutely. Um, whoever can vote for the lowest branch of the of of the of the uh, uh, state government can vote in national elections. And if a state goes down, uh, uh, worth could. You, could you uh, uh, ask that question in a different way? Do states do that now? I don't know what the that is. Oh, do, have, uh, you're probably asking, do any states go under 18? I am not aware. I'm going to say it like a lawyer here. I am not aware of any state that goes under 18 on its voting age. If that's the proper interpretation of that question. But, uh, you know, that might happen. Uh, now, it seems like states could limit voting to citizens of the United States. would not seem to be against the Constitution. So uh, I, I want to round out this uh, little uh, well, we do kind of uh, limit the vote to citizens, although the ID question uh, that was raised earlier uh, is on, I would say, touches on this because uh, IDs are proof of citizenship. So um, 
uh, and that's generally why they're you know put in uh, those laws are put in place proof of citizenship um, so we may formally uh, yeah uh, yes they are proof of residency but they can also be proof of citizenship um, and uh, all right so we're good uh, so I want to just go through this formula of the 15th Amendment here okay and uh, you know my theme the theme that I would like to develop uh, is is um, did the 15th Amendment work okay I would like us to think about that and generally uh, I want us to think about how would we know if it had worked what would we look for to see if the 15th Amendment worked okay and uh, in a way, I want you to, we can hold our powder a little bit on this, uh, and then I want to I raise this question, all right? So this is my little summary here of, of, uh, of the, 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 the 15th Amendment formula. It's basically state prohibition, congressional enforcement, just like the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is no state shall in, in Section 1, and in Section 5, Congress shall have the power to enforce the provisions of this amendment. 15th Amendment does the same thing. No state shall. Congress shall have the power to enforce. And from the 15th Amendment, we get the Enforcement Acts. That is, the attempt to enforce the right to vote. Now, let's, uh, let's back up. Uh, how would we know if the 15th Amendment worked? All right, Patricia uh, raises something here. The number of registered voters prior to and after the passing of the amendment. There, uh, there were roadblocks in the form of literacy tests. That's true, but, uh, but don't jump to literacy tests yet. We're going to get to that in a, in a little bit. Um, Tali says it worked a little, then it weakened. All right? We're going we're gonna to look at some numbers on that. What do you guys think of Patricia's suggestion here, that we could look at the number of people who vote? And, uh, and that might be a decent little sign of whether the thing worked. couple others are typing here, so I'm going to let them. Uh... All right, so uh, many of our answers here, did these work? Uh -huh. Did the uh, did this amendment work? Uh, raise the issue of enforcement and intimidation. Okay, and uh, this I think this uh, forces my hand and uh, says let's talk about the enforcement acts for just a little bit here. So grab your grab your enforcement act if you don't have it handy. Um, and uh, and what did the enforcement act? Do. Yeah. 
What do the Enforcement Acts of 1870, 1871 do? And maybe maybe we could go through a couple sections here of this. Uh, so let's let's uh, let's gather our um, gather our documents here for a moment, and uh, let's look at section one of the. Uh, actually, let's not look at section one. Let's start with section four. of the Enforcement Act of 1870. What do they do? Or what does Section 4 do? Now, Carol says it sets out penalties for interfering with the right to vote. Let's just, let's read it here. I have it up on, um, on the board in large part. I think this is one of the key parts. Um, if any person by force, bribery, threats, intimidation, or other unlawful means shall hinder, delay, prevent, or obstruct, or shall combine and confederate with others to hinder, delay, prevent, or obstruct any citizen from doing any act required to be done to qualify him to vote, or from voting in any election as aforesaid. Such person shall, for such offense, forfeit and pay the sum of $500 to the person aggrieved thereby, to be recovered by an action on the case with full costs, and such allowance for counsel fees as the court shall deem just and shall also for every such offense be guilty of a misdemeanor, and shall on conviction thereof be fined not less than $500, and be imprisoned not less than one month, and not more than one year or both at the discretion of the court. So what does this seem to do? All right, so it sets up a penalty for a person hindering the right to vote. That seems, all right, what kind of penalty? Or I should say, I should say that differently. What kind of penalties does this set up? All right, fines and imprisonment. All right, that's true. All right, but let's, let's make some distinctions here. I think they, these are important. Okay, so one of the one of the ways it makes this a federal crime is it calls it a misdemeanor to hinder or intimidate someone in the right to vote or to qualify themselves to vote. All right, and if it's a misdemeanor, that is a charge brought on behalf of government, and it'll be the national government to a federal court. This will come up later in the act, and we'll look at it in a second. But it also, and this is the part I want us to look at, it also says that you have a private claim, what we today would call a tort, against someone who hinders your right to vote by force, bribery, threats, intimidation, or any other unlawful means. So it first sets up a civil claim or a claim for civil action if you as one person are hindered by another person. And then it also sets up a parallel track whereby this is a crime and not just a civil action. Okay, so if the national government doesn't prosecute such uh, violators of this law, you still have recourse to do something. 
you have recourse to the national, that is to the federal courts, who are to hear cases of voter hindrance and intimidation. Okay, so that, I want to emphasize that. All right, uh, and, and, and this is a great question here, right? Uh, how would a prosecutor pursue a misdemeanor? Okay, well, um, we have actual evidence on this matter. Uh, but let's let's just uh, let's go through. A, uh, I, I want to get to that question, Shannon. I, I promise I will get to that question. Um, but let's just go through a couple of these other sections here of the um, uh, of the Enforcement Act of 1870, Section Five. makes it a federal crime to extort voting. Right? Like, if you vote, you won't be able to work here, that kind of stuff. Section 6 makes it a federal crime to suppress the vote. A felony, in fact. Section 8 creates federal court jurisdiction over all of these cases. Look at Section 9 for a second. Did you guys notice what Section 9 does? I'm going to read a little bit. Uh, actually, let's, why don't you take a look at Section 9 of the Enforcement Act of 1870. What does Section 9 accomplish? District attorneys, marshals, and deputy marshals of the United States, it begins with. What does that accomplish? Good, Stacy, that's excellent. It funds a system of investigation and prosecution to enforce the law as it has been defined up to this point. And uh, Reed, I think, excellently summarizes what the next section is about. requires action by the enforcers, and in fact, Section 10 makes it a federal crime to refuse to enforce the law. So if you're a state official, if you are a state official and you don't investigate these things, it becomes a federal crime. Section 11, I just want to, you know, Section 11 makes it a federal crime to obstruct an investigation to break people out of jail, and so on, to intimidate witnesses to trials and such. Now, if you were, and, and here's, the, here's the kind of uh, payoff here on this, okay? If you were 
serious about protecting the right to vote, what kind of law would you pass? What, what, what would it look like? Would the law look like the Enforcement Act of 1870? The Enforcement Act of 1870 creates federal crimes. It creates a list of federal crimes that might obstruct voting. It puts those crimes in national courts. It provides law enforcement and prosecutor, pro prosecutorial power over these crimes. And even, we didn't read this, it allows for the president to suspend the uh, you know, normal functioning of the law and put the military in charge. I mean, this is, you know, this is kind of, when you look at these enforcement acts, you realize, I think, that the radical Republicans who passed it and Grant who signs it they thought through the problems. They knew what the problems were, and they wanted to solve the problems. You know, these men, you know, I, I like to think of it like this. They put their life on the line in the Civil War. They wanted to win the peace as well. They didn't want to have won the war and to have the war undermined later. Now, let me ask, uh, let me ask another question, and maybe this will be another. So they have this law. Well, how do you know that they're serious about the law? How do you know that they're serious about making this Enforcement Act of 1870 work? So what do you mean by that? Lyandra says uh, there were consequences to not complying. Explain consequences. And what would it take to back up what is written? You, you, do you mean something like, um, did they go after people who violated this law? Did the number of prosecutions go up? Did the number of deputy marshals who were employed by the Justice Department go up? Did they investigate more crimes? Did they send in troops if it was necessary? Very good. So let's look. Okay. After the, uh, after the Enforcement Acts are passed, after the 15th Amendment is passed, 
here are some facts, okay? Um, the Justice Department, which didn't exist until 1868, uh, saw in, uh, you know, a more than 200% uh, increase in the size of its budget and the number of its prosecutors. And they were doing something, you know, with their budgets. Um, they were going after, I would say, serious lawbreakers. Here, um, here are the numbers uh, from from a few years uh, from this period. You know, the number of prosecutions under the Enforcement Act: two hundred seventy-one in eighteen seventy, eight seventy-nine in seventy-one, eighteen hundred ninety in eighteen seventy-two. 1960 in the year 1873. So there was a huge increase in the number of prosecutions. Now, this is at least some evidence that they took it seriously. You could say that there was a big increase in presidential election year. I think that's true. Uh, you could also say that there was a big in, there was an increase after the presidential year in 1873. That is, you know, I think they were. This is the point I would like to make. Uh, it was good policy and good politics, and the radical Republicans were interested in the policy. Now, yes, well, Tali, Tali is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, denying that this, uh, I'm not asserting that this went on forever. But what I am trying to show is an appreciation for the seriousness of intent and uh, of, of those who went about reconstructing the South. Um, and in fact, you could see in 1872, I did just a sample of various states, and there's another way of doing this I have on the next slide. Um, but the <coughs> Grant's vote pre-Act, pre-15th Amendment, was, was different than it was post-Enforcement uh, Act, post-15th Amendment. When you compare the uh, voting in southern states in 1868 and 1872, you see that it went up. And that is almost entirely due to the Enforcement Act. Eventually, the number of votes for Republican presidential candidates would go, I'm just going to say, way down so that the Republicans would have no chance to win in um, in the heavily Democratic South. But I mean, look at Kentucky, a state where the Enforcement Act, you know, had a great effect. It doubles the size of the Republican vote in four years, more than doubles, by protecting the free access to the vote. 
And this next one uh, begins to uh, get to where Tali is pointing us, but I'm not gonna, we're not going to go there entirely yet. Um, is that uh, these are estimates. It's very difficult to know the percentage of blacks or whites that voted in any of these states. Um, and the models that people use uh, uh, to figure this stuff out are based on county level and precinct level data compared with uh, census data. But you can see in 1880, this is after the so-called end of Reconstruction. In many states, black voter turnout as a percentage of the total black population was very high in 1880. The Enforcement Act was still enforced. Justice Department was still there to enforce the law. Look at 1880. 81% turnout among blacks, according to estimates, in North Carolina. 77% in South Carolina. 84% in Florida. Those are very high turnout percentages. Now, Stacy, you note, and you rightly note, that there's a big decline. Um, when and why? And, and, and this is a question for everyone. When and why? Okay. Um, all right. So we have excellent. Uh, we have excellent um, string of things mentioned here, and uh, so let's try to combine them. Let's try. Uh, uh, so Plessy versus Ferguson is 1896. Uh, if my memory serves, I think it does. Um, I would say that was a nail in the coffin, uh, but it was already a coffin by 1896. Okay. Now. The first question is when, and that may help us understand uh, why or how. And uh, many people have identified the period between 1892 and 1900 as the time when, and, and you know, culminating ultimately in 1912, as the period where black voter turnout uh, declines. Now let's just, I, I should step back for a second here and uh, so, so we can be comprehensive about this. Why are we looking at black voter turnout? 
because the 15th Amendment says that the right to vote shall not be abridged on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So if the 15th Amendment is going to be successfully implemented, we should expect blacks to vote. But by 1892 and after, those voting percentages go down. Now, Shannon mentions this, and this is very interesting. Maybe they had less fear of enforcement. Now, uh, I take it, Shannon, by they you mean the Southerners, the Southern whites. Would I be correct in that? Good. They had less fear of enforcement. And I think that's hitting the nail on the head in a, in a very uh, uh, perceptive way. That is, the enforcement of the Enforcement Act stopped when Grover Cleveland became president and he had a 100% democratically controlled Congress in 1892. And some states picked up on it a little sooner than others, but recognizing that the national government after 1892 was not going to take the enforcement of these laws seriously, they began to pass things like poll taxes, property provisions, what were the other things that you, grandfather clauses. Yes, uh, so exactly right. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, excellent. Cleveland and his Congress stopped the act. And the Republicans often called for its reinstitution after that. But under Teddy Roosevelt, later, they said that they were going to stop uh, uh, even asking for the re uh, enf enforcement acts to be reinstated. So there's a I would say, decline in the enforcement of the Enforcement Acts. Now, there's a couple things I think that are very interesting about this, and I don't know, you can, um, you can tell me if you're interested in this, is that the, the usual story that our history textbooks tell us about Reconstruction is that the Union pulled out in 1876, and that was the end of it. I think that is wrong. It is wrong. The Army pulled out in 1876. But the Justice Department was still vigorous enough after 1876 in its prosecutions under the Enforcement Act to make the black vote effective. It wasn't until the Justice Department pulled out of the South that that uh, the black vote dwindled and became very difficult, if not impossible, to vote. And Shannon asked, the progressive era brought an increased interest, I take it, in securing the right to vote? And I think that's, uh, it, it actually goes the other way. Uh, the progressive era continued these policies and, in fact, deepened them uh, in, in ways, uh, you know, like blacks became ineligible for federal jobs under Woodrow Wilson for the first time. 
uh, it had been uh, a normal policy of the Republican administrations to put uh, freedmen in positions in the South of post office and things like that. But but uh, Wilson resegregated that part uh, of the federal bureaucracy and uh, and I, I would say deepened the problem uh, here. So uh, it's of uh, of development. Uh, the enforcement works until the enforcement stops. And I guess that's, um, uh, you know, it, we, we often blame the states and, you know, and rightly so for the poll taxes, the literacy tests, the precinct requi uh, residency requirements and things like that. But those things only became possible because the Enforcement Act had, I'll say, like detoothed itself. So now, uh, I want to, I want to, it, it, it does have something to do with the military leaving, uh, and Shannon is right. Uh, uh, what I want to emphasize, though, is that a legal apparatus uh, can work well in enforcing this kind of law, even by itself. Uh, it, but it's very difficult to overcome extraordinary persistent uh, with both the military and the legal apparatus. I would, you know, I put it like that. Okay. Now, I want us to, you know, spend the rest of our time thinking about, I think, the big question of these uh, Reconstruction Amendments. Uh, we've, we've looked at how they change the structure of the Constitution. My theme is that they complete the Constitution. They keep uh, the formulae of state prohibition and national enforcement in place. And they, from abridging private rights, something that, as James Madison said, the original Constitution did very imperfectly. But were these successful amendments? And, you know, on that uh, is even a bigger question. Was the Civil War a successful policy? Let's take that and let's take the smaller chunk first. Were these successful amendments to the United States Constitution? And how would we know? If you guys were back in the Congress of 1868, how would you have defined success? And at what point would you say you had not achieved it?
Okay, so they were, I'm going to go say something like they were very, they were successful in the very long term. And, but, and, and Lyandra makes the great point, right? When the numbers start dropping, the right to vote and their civil rights aren't protected. Um, uh, it makes you wonder. And I, I, I take it Shannon's answer uh, mirrors uh, the the uh, it would take several decades answer that is um, in reference to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which some people call the Second Reconstruction. Why did the Second Reconstruction, that is the Civil Rights Act, I'm going to say, of 1964 succeed, where the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Enforcement Act didn't? Why did why did one long term you know or, yeah I'll leave it like that why was 64 1964 successful and 1866 not Stacy what do you mean by the population changed more people are willing to stand up for what was wrong. So I wonder if, uh, if what you guys are saying is that the South changed. The South may have been bad in 1964, but it wasn't as bad as it was in 1866. And that the North was committed to racial ending racial subordination in 1866, but it was even more committed in 1964. That is, the shift was kind of away from the view, I'm, I'm just you know throwing this out there, away from the view of racial subordination and to one of uh, equal treatment under the law, equal protection under the law. So, um, uh, you know, the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act looks a lot like the 1875 Civil Rights Act. Very similar in its structure, in what it makes a law, in, um, 
in um, the investig investigatory power powers created by uh, under the federal authority. Um, but the country is different, and uh, and I like that. I think that that seems correct to me. That is, the South was less bad than it was, and the North was, I will say, more interested in ending racial. On these uh, kinds of questions, it's always difficult to disentangle the cause and the effect. Um, uh, uh, it's difficult in the effect. Is Brown versus Board a cause of the racial change or is it an effect of the racial change? Is the media being listened to a cause of change or it is an effect of change? Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think this is a chicken and egg type question, but it's one of the great questions that make up our understanding of history. Uh, I, I think of it as, uh, as, like Brown versus Board as an effect. That is, it was a change that was willing to, uh, you know, drop some constitutional scruples on these matters uh, that it wasn't willing to do in the aftermath of Reconstruction. Uh, and, and, you know, kicking this question just upstairs a little more, um, we say that the Civil War was a successful policy. So, Stacy, why do you say no? I think that's... Yeah, and, and Lyandra, uh, I mean, I like that. That's a really important thing to say. And, you know, the military's presence in the 1950s was there in the South. Um, but it was nothing compared to what it was in the 1860s and early 70s. Um, and what just a few military in interventions accomplished in 1950, deep and many military interventions in the South could not accomplish in 1870. And um, I, I take that to be a reflection that is, uh, uh, of the deeper change in the country. Yeah, no, these are all really excellent. Uh, these are all really excellent observations about the Civil War. Um, it's, you know, obviously history isn't the kind of environment where you can run an experiment and uh, you can't see what might have been the outcome on the other side. Uh, the twin goals of, uh, if we remember back to that Lincoln speech uh, that, uh, that uh, at Peoria that we looked at in the first. Uh, in the first, we looked at the debate between Lincoln and Douglas in the first session. Um, uh, Lincoln 
uh, earlier in his career was asked uh, if all power in heaven or earth were given to him, what he would do with slavery as a uh, as an institution that already exists, and he said he didn't know. Um, he didn't think uh, you could colonize uh, the freedmen. He did not think that whites would accept them as their social and political equals, and uh, and he didn't think that you could have this condition between slavery and freedom where they're kind of kept around as underlings because that would not really improve their condition. And, uh, and what we get after the Civil War for years is that condition of underlings that Lincoln said may not improve their conditions. There were two goals of the Civil War, right? One, to preserve the Union and ultimately a to uh, end slavery. And uh, it's hard to say when the Union was reunited and when the belief in racial subordination ended. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's Carol's question is a great question, I think. That's the experiment that we can't run. Would it have been possible for the, there to be a United States and a Confederate States living next to one another with such different systems, sharing a long border, sharing rivers that go north and south? Um, could the geography have reunited us? Uh, would the South eventually have, uh, in this case, changed its ways? But uh, uh, so let's, uh, uh, you know, by, by way of wrapping up, the, the takeaways that I hope. Uh, I hope these uh, uh, investigation of the Civil War amendments you can take with you are these. Uh, first of all, these uh, amendments do not fundamentally transform the Constitution. The states have the first stab at providing civil rights. There are just now federal standards to which the states are held. Is designed to make rights more secure um, by uh, providing, I'm going to call it like a federal backstop or beneath which states cannot sink. And, uh, and the men who drew up these Reconstruction Amendments and the bills to enforce them were men of serious purpose. Many had spilled blood, lost sons, lost friends in the Civil War. They were interested that the dead not die in vain. They were interested in securing the war goals of the Union, and they thought through the problems that they faced. Ultimately, I think, the intransigence of the South and the needs of further Union um, made it difficult to overcome and to actually accomplish those goals. So, in the medium term, maybe even, the Reconstruction Amendments were not successful. Ultimately, however, their promise uh, seems to be vindicated in that second Reconstruction, that much easier Reconstruction that happens in the wake of uh, uh, the 1950s and 60s in the United States. So those are, those are the takeaway points that uh, I hope you uh, can cherish and put there in, in uh, uh, 
uh, as they as they may be needed. Uh, does anyone have any other questions that they'd like to address my way? Well, seeing, seeing no questions, I want to thank everyone for their uh, participation and over the last three weeks. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, it's been great for me to go back and look at some of these uh, stats and to ask these big questions on, on Reconstruction. I appreciate everyone's attention, and I want to thank you for attending. Is there, um, uh, if you ever have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Um, my email address I will put up here quickly. I think I got it right, and uh, it, it, that looks right. And so thank you all, and have a good rest of the summer. Enjoy your vacation.